Good day, Code Keepers. Get ready for another great episode. I have with us today, as you can see, author <laughs> Rhonda McGee. She has an intriguing book that deals with, ah, you'll have to find out. So welcome to another great episode of Get On Code. All right. Welcome to Get On Code, The Fly Guy Show, which is a series of melanated conversations focused on empowerment, health, wealth, and knowledge of self. People think in binary choices because they are conditioned to. And on the wall was a picture of a wolf and a lion. I think the wolf was the Democratic Party, the lion was the Republicans. But the drug trade and all these illegal stuff that uh, people do, that's still economics. It's just that they couldn't do it in a traditional system. We're talking about melanated wealth. So we can build wealth, but we just, for some reason, don't seem to be able to transfer it. You had a great experience. Fine. That means nothing. What were you told as a child about education? You had to be how many times better? Every impression without an expression becomes depression. All right, coders, code keepers, good to have you back. We're going to have a really intriguing conversation on racial justice. Now, this is the Get On Code show where we focus on empowerment and we're going to find how we can find empowerment through this concept of racial justice. So with us today, we have the great author, Rhonda McGee, and the book that she wrote is The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. Now, I say we transform our communities through empowerment. Mindfulness might be a part of empowerment I had never considered. So, hey, welcome to the show. It's time, it's time to get on code. <laughs> All hey, right. Rhonda. Hey. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you know, where are you from? Where are you at right now? Mm, thank you, my dear. So I am uh, born and raised in the Southeast, uh, born in a little town called Kinston, North Carolina, K-Town, for all y'all North Carolinians, East Coast, East, Southeast Carolinians out there, <laughs> um, but raised in Hampton, Virginia, and uh, went to school at UVA forever, it seems, Uh undergrad sociology, graduate degree in law school, and then came out to San Francisco to work as a lawyer, which I did for about five years, and then to become a law professor, which I've been doing for about 22 years. So I've been teaching at the University of San Francisco School of Law, and I teach ordinary law classes like torts and insurance law and immigration. Uh, but also I created a seminar on racism in American legal history, and we look at critical race theory, and we look at um, you know, the failure of the legal system to really uproot and root and upend racism. Um, in the course of that, I started drawing more on my own mindfulness practice, and I ended up developing a course on mindfulness and luring and infusing some of the mindfulness work into the race-related classes about 15 years ago, and that led to the book and where I am today. Okay, well, you brought up the term mindfulness about three times. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go deep. What is mindfulness? <laughs> How does it heal? How does it help? Yeah. Oh, thank you. So, you know, um, so we can use the word mindfulness to apply to a lot of different things. And I'll say that we often think of it as a set of personal practices that can support us in paying attention um, with a, a, on purpose, right? Like, training our attention to focus at will or, you know, place our attention where we want it and keep it there with some stability. So paying attention, but 
doing so on purpose and, and with an attitude of open receptivity to what is. And by which we mean, we're not saying we're just open to whatever is all the time, but we're saying we create space sometimes to notice when we're in judgment, notice when we're in reaction and allow ourselves to be present to what is arising as a support for being more masterful and skillful in how we respond rather than react. And so mindfulness for me, it's the practices that support that kind of um, skill development of being present and being able to place our attention where we want at will and have access to a range of choice in terms of how we respond rather than react. When we practice mindfulness, however, with some commitment and maybe some support, um, right, from a community of practice, perhaps, or different things that help us stay with the difficulty of developing this as a practice, because it sounds simple, but it's sometimes hard. When we do that on a regular basis, it can help us develop mm, a way of being with, with, with life and all of its challenges that is more resilient that gives us regular access to the sources of power we have within ourselves and can assist us in the predictable challenges of working together with other human beings, people stress, which can show up at any time when we're trying to do something in the world. Mindfulness can help us. It's been research shown to do that. So that's what I uh, think of when I think of the word mindfulness. And lastly, I'll just say, as maybe I've alluded to already, I see it as not just this personal practice, but it's definitely a practice with external, interpersonal, and systemic collective ramifications. Um, and we can talk about that too. But um, part of my work has been to help shift how we think about mindfulness a bit away from the hyper-focus on the individual calming stress reduction piece. That's important, but it's not the whole story. It's for being in the world, which is always a radically interconnected experience and you know, being more skillful as we move through the world. Interesting, interesting. Um, because when I hear mindfulness and when others sometimes hear mindfulness, mm-hmm. until I just heard your definition, mm-hmm. I thought it was kind of woo-woo, you know, it's, yes. it was just kind of spacey out there. Um, but you just shared it as a really effective tool. And you talked about the word systemic. And so, you know, within the last three to five years, whenever you hear step, you know, systemic, you think racism. So you mentioned earlier that there were some failures in our government practices to address racism. Yeah. Tell us about those failures in our American uh, system. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, you know, where do we start? Um, I mean, I guess the first part is just to say that it, hmm. You know, the system was created to maintain um, a certain kind of racial hierarchy, I think. And I think, you know, if we look at our history, if we look at the unvarnished truth of it, this is not the only thing it was created to do. But it certainly um, was was really uh, dug in to um, uh, supporting a system of privilege for for folks who are identified as white and disadvantage for people who were identified as black. And then all, setting up all kinds of negotiation for people who might find themselves somewhere, um, you know, outside of that binary, the racial, the black-white binary. Um, and, and we saw that, of course, in enslavement and in the elaboration of law and policy that supported the institution, institutions of slavery and enslavement. 
so we could, you know, we know that historically our law and policy was completely um, on the side of oppression, really. And that's a sobering thing to uh, explore, to examine. We, you know, we want to be proud of our American heritage. And, and, and I think there's some things to be proud of. But, but for me, the pride comes in the looking at how we have again and again found within the broad American community substrains who are willing to challenge these government commitments to oppression. But it's a cycle. So, um, you know, if wait, we look wait, at, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Government oppression. That just that when you say that out loud, that that just it, it has to make people feel uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. Government commitments to oppression. Commitment to oppression. That's what the part that, I was. You know? Yeah. If we by oppression, we mean again systems of power brought to bear to, you know, minimize access to resources and the resources for thriving, including just basic empowering resources like education, access to vote. This is oppression. And, you know, obviously the systems, I say systems of enslavement because we had, you know, various different ways that slavery was supported at various um, state and, and other levels. But the ult ultimately, this was a highly oppressive system that our entire legal system uh, colluded to support. And not just our legal system, but all of our major institutions colluded. I mean, and by which I mean, you know, you can just look at the history. You can just, it's not, it's not my my spin on it. It's um so in my classes on uh, on race and American legal history, of course, we look at you know the law, the colonies, uh, the colon colonial laws in Virginia, in North Carolina, um, Florida, right? The you know the early settler cultures and our that became the foundation states, the original states that sent those to, you know, to the constitutional conventions to draft and ratify our constitution, right? All of them were kind of just deeply committed to, well, there was a lot, enough deep commitment to slavery that, you know, we had to make some compromises with the slave states to be able to even enact a constitution. But those compromises were just set, baked into the foundation. And, you know, you can look at um, early legal history and see, oh, you know, the laws of North Carolina that um, protected, you know, violence against enslaved people, right, as outside of the scope of the law to even protect. Um, or after, let's fast forward after um, the Civil War, uh, and you'll see, you know, the legacies of um, segregation showing up in you know, Plessy versus Ferguson, which was a case in which the Supreme Court in 1897 declared that separate but equal was kind of okay under the 14th Amendment, even though they knew that separate didn't really mean equal. There weren't equal resources distributed. It was inequality, uh, balkanized by law. And so, you know, the law, in other words, has kind of um, over time, more often than not, stood with oppression. And it's only in these exceptional circumstances that um, it has really been the energy for change. But it's happened enough 
Brown versus Board of Education, right? The the case, uh, the civil rights era case, right? That that opened up the possibility in the 1950s, the pathway to a desegregated society. People point to that as the evidence of the law being anti-oppressive. But if you look at the Supreme Court history after that case, you see again, a lot of backslide, a lot of, you know, um, whew, providing space and comfort for the restoration once again, this time through mass incarceration, of a state of inequality, right? Because once people, once the criminal law started to pervasively more, and I say this because, you know, people don't often know, but if you look at uh, the percentage of the black population that was incarcerated during the, the period of segregation, really up through the 1950s and early 60s, um, the you know, the percentage of, of, of Blacks who were incarcerated compared to whites, I mean, it was much more disproportionately a white system. Whites were, because they are the disproportionately majority population, and because the system had not been arrayed against Black people in the, in the middle of the 50s. Why wasn't it? We already had segregation. We didn't need the system of, of the carceral state to kind of lock us down to the degree that we needed after we got rid of segregation. So there are so many different ways that the law and policy has sort of morphed over time to basically maintain what one of one legal scholar calls preservation through transformation. Uh, her name is Reva Segel. She's a law professor at Yale. I think she's still at Yale. And she's written about how this law, even with our equal protection commitments, even with this constitution, has managed over time to preserve the status quo by transforming. It maintains the hierarchy by like moving. Oh, slavery won't work anymore. Okay, we're going to do segregation. Oh, segregation is illegal. All right, let's let's do mass incarceration. Whoa. The outcome is the same. The outcomes are the same. A small percentage of Black folk across our history have been able to break through. So there was, you know, Frederick Douglass who literally broke the shackles of enslavement and became this international rock star, human rights abolitionist, right? There have mm -hmm. always been people breaking through, like, you know, Thurgood Marshall in, in the period of segregation, becoming this rock star, arguing cases to the Supreme Court, you know. And now there's Oprah and Obama, and people point to those two as if, look, that means the system is, is, is open. Well, there have always been a small percentage because, right? So, so really, um, this system does a good job of maintaining the racial hierarchy. And it's a painful thing to have our students look at. But when we look at it, and I don't, we just look at the history and they come to see that, you know, when you really look at this history, there's really no argument there. But what we can do though, is realize how just looking at that system and getting upset about it doesn't do us any service. That's not empowering. You know, we need to find ways to engage with these systems and disrupt and um, find freedom, notwithstanding what the systems might be doing to help keep us, you know, um, disempowered. Find our empowerment, notwithstanding what the systems might be doing to enable, you know, a coup or January 6th or whatever it might be doing. The, the question is, how can we find access to that which empowers? And I've started to lean on my mindfulness practice to support me years ago, 
to support me in creating these classes, to support me in helping students confront this stuff for the first time. They predictably, just like when people's students confront, for example, climate change data, you know, these classes, right? Environmental science classes, students come in and they look at the data and like start to get depressed. Like, wow, it's worse than I thought. Similar thing was happening in my race classes. My students were like, it's worse than I thought. How do you, as a professor, help expose students to some truth, but not do harm in the process? And what I started to realize is we needed to embed in that those arcs of study practices for maintaining our strength or, or even healing as we went, restoring, right? So we wouldn't get into like a victim mode around it. It's like, okay, that, that happens, but that's not all of who we are or even all of what this country can do. Because notwithstanding all of that, we're here and we have this life and we have these opportunities and we can disrupt them. We do. And we have historically uh, been such an important part of the evolution of the entire country, not just of, you know, black and um, minoritized experiences or women's or other, you know, subjugated minoritized experiences. We've helped create opportunity and an equality discourse that reaches and concerns the world now. Um, so there are so many different ways that notwithstanding what I just said, there's also another story, which is about how through all of that, we have helped create this beautiful system with at least the potential uh, for allowing everybody's voices to matter, right? For multiracial democracy. But it's the potential for that that also is so you know, challenging for people who are not necessarily on board with multiracial democracy. And so that's where we find ourselves right here today. That kind of reminds me of something that I learned when I was growing up and uh, my parents and some of the elders in the African-centered communities I was involved with um, used to say that we're the mule and, you know, people of African descent, you know, foundational African Americans um, do the hard work that change. Mm -hmm the culture, change the political culture of the United States, but everyone else benefits because America has said, oh, you're <laughs> right. We need to stop doing that. And now we're going to help somebody else <laughs> and we're going to give them more resources and we're going to ignore you. Um, you've, you're a law, you've seen, you've studied law, you've studied legality changes, policy. Is there truth to that? Or were my parents just hating? Were they teaching me to be racist? Were they teaching me to hate uh, white people? You know, is it yeah. You know, it's really interesting. I think the challenge is to be able to see what our history can tell us without, um, without taking the bait of um, predicting that ne that necessarily what history has shown us is you know is the way of the future. In other words, that's where mindfulness comes in, actually, my brother. It's like being able to see the truth where and see patterns. Um, you know, it, it is it is undeniable that some of the battles that uh, emerged out of the black experience have led to freedoms that, you know, white women were able to access the vote before, certainly before black men, really, in effective numbers. Um, certainly women getting the right to vote applied to white women, not black women, right? And right. we didn't really fully have a chance to vote until the the Voting Rights Act. 
of the, of, of the 1960s as well. So that's an example, but it's also true of the LGBTQI plus right movement now, through which many of our brothers and sisters uh, in the black community are getting uh, some sort of opportunities. But yeah, the law that they're using to open up those doors was, uh, you know, builds on the struggle for equal rights that black folk um, have been um laying the groundwork for and achieving, you know, some, you know, precedent for under law and under constitutional law that other people have been leaned into and, and used to amplify their cause. So it is true, but I will, you know, but the piece that I would say is we also benefit from those things. The problem is we don't benefit as much as we might because this, you know, this pattern repeats itself of finding a way to maintain this hierarchy whereby a lot of us have to struggle more than we should. But again, the good news is, you know, our story is not just struggle. You know, we are here. And at this moment in particular, with technology being what it is, with opportunities being what they are, we can access, you know, ways of disrupting and, you know, I'm, I'm an example of it. Like I was born into a, you know, poor, let's just name it, family in North Carolina where, you know, none of my family had gone to college before me. Like I was totally a first generation college, let alone graduate student, let alone two graduate degrees, let alone mindfulness teacher. And, you know, now I've spoken before the parliament in the UK on this theme and other themes. And so I'm saying that to say, Possibility still exists, but uh, uh, but you know, but we, we we struggle, and I think um, this is one of the reasons why I started to lean into mindfulness to support. Intriguing, intriguing. Uh, you've spoken in front of Parliament. I have, but you also spoke on the TEDx stage. I spoke on TEDx. Yes. <laughs> so. <laughs> You know, I'm watching your YouTube video where you got it. Well, the TEDx YouTube video where you got a chance to talk. And I, I have to admit, this uh, video really kind of blew me away. I was so excited after watching this video. And this was just 2020. Um, yes. What went into. And this is kind of just my interest. Yeah. This yes. has probably little to do with your book. <laughs> but how did you get on that TEDx stage? <laughs> Well, you know, that's a very interesting story. The TED folk found me after, you know, I've been speaking and presenting to larger and larger crowds uh, for some years. You know, um, it's often something like this will happen. A book will come out and it looks like the person just wrote a book. But actually, of course, everything I've been doing to get to this point has been some years. So I started to speak about some of the ways that I was bringing mindfulness into my classroom to help us, um, you know, up in some of the patterns around racism and, and really make the most of our lives and our opportunities, right? Give ourselves, a, a you know, reclaim our power and, and, and sort of make the most even in systems that are hard. And so I'm speaking about that and presenting about it. And people started asking me, first of all, do you have a book? You should have a book. Where's your book? I thought I heard you say you had a book. So I started working on a book. But um, also what happened was uh, the TED folks found one of my talks actually, and and asked me if I were interested in giving a talk. But here's the interesting thing, back to what I've been talking to you about, this theme of this talk. You know, I, I hope I'm not, well, let's just say 
there had to be some conversation about what the the top topic would be. Um, you know, the particular Ted person who contacted me didn't really see it. I think he contacted me in like 2017 or 18, maybe even was 16, but it was at a point where he, there really wasn't an understanding of really why we might need to revisit racism. I mean, he was really thinking, well, I'm not sure people really want to hear or talk about racism. And then he also wasn't sure people necessarily want to hear or talk about mindfulness. So we had these conversations about, well, what would you present? And I'm like, well, those are the things I do. That is, that's what I do. And so at a certain point, he actually asked me, um, would you just like to be an MC? And I'm like, oh, okay, just bring me on to kind of help move other people through with ideas. I don't think so. So I declined that invitation and I published the book. And then a couple, uh, you know, a year or in the process of receiving my book, it was like, oh, this is the person we didn't, yeah, let's invite her to do this TED Talk and speak about whatever she wants to speak about. And that's how that happened. Wow, wow. But what's intriguing to me is this concept of creation leads to empowerment. I've learned that if you use your talent and you create something, something tangible, that provides a level of empowerment unlike anything else. And so, you know, they're like, oh, we like to have her on the stage. (laughs) I'm not sure. Can you dance to our tune? No. (laughs) Okay. And then you put a book out and they're like, hey, the stage is yours. Play whatever you want (laughs) to play. Do whatever you want to do. I I think that's that's the power of empowerment through creation. Um, so, So let's talk a little bit about the book. In the book, uh, there is, we talked about mindfulness. Uh, In the book, you mentioned that the civil rights movement made racism harder to see and name. All right, you got to go deep into that. You got to go deep into that. Let's go. go. And it's sort of a little bit what I was mentioning before, but when you, as a civil rights movement, are focused on disestablishing segregation and literally white and black signs on water fountains, and you succeed in doing that. Some people see that change as a as by itself the full transformation. We did it. And I've heard that from people that you know, didn't we have a civil rights movement and if there is still inequality since we got rid of the separate but equal and segregation doesn't that mean it's really just kind of the fault of 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 people who are not working hard enough? Isn't it the fault of your culture? Isn't it the fault of, you know, is it really racism? Is it just that you just can't compete, right? So um, this is what I mean to say, because the way we were trained to think about racism as these intentional discrete acts where some one person would bring um, a particular intentional racist act and policy and put it online and, you know, uh, reenact slavery, we were trained to see racism as this sort of intentional policies and practices. And that made it harder to see, you know, when the law was no longer race specific, it's technically race neutral, but there's a much harsher harsher penalty, for example, for possession of the same amount of cocaine in crack form versus cocaine in powder form. And that's just one example of a race neutral. There's nothing in there that says we're going to over incarcerate black people. 
But if you know that crack is a kind of form of cocaine that is disproportionately sometimes available or um, had was made available, if you will, in uh, communities that were disproportionately black and powder cocaine was the kind of cocaine disproportionately found in other places and maybe the suburbs and maybe white communities, having a facially neutral law that led to much harsher penalties for, for possessing the same amount of cocaine in crack form is an example of a kind of race neutral policy that has a racially disparate impact. And the civil rights movement, because it trained us all to be looking for explicitly racist people, practically wearing hoods, right? And, and, and really clearly establishing the intentionally racist outcomes as their goal. It made it hard for, harder for us to see these more subtle ways that law and policy can, again, effectuate the same impact in terms of the racial hierarchy, even though the law has changed. You know, and now, so that meant that, you know, un systemic racism and um, unconscious racism was harder to, to ferret out or to address. Now, of course, we're seeing a rise once again of more explicit racism, right? We're seeing people feeling more comfortable and free to just speak explicitly about their biases against certain types of people and for other types of people. Um, so it's not that we ever, you know, that explicit racism ever went away. It hasn't. Um, but yes, in some ways, the civil rights movement made it harder for us to see the subtle ways that racism can persist even after you've had, you know, success in creating a Voting Rights Act, which as we all know, we're now having to rewrite because we thought, oh, we were done with needing a Voting Rights Act, right? Um, the Supreme Court had decided um, some years ago in the Shelby versus Holder opinion, 2013, I believe, may have to double check that year. But in Shelby versus Holder, the Supreme Court decided we've gotten to the point where we don't really need to really oversee voting rights and, and to ferret out racism in that in the process by which people are having access to the right to vote and states are setting up voting systems. And now we're starting to see we pulled back some of the protections on the right to vote probably too soon because the minute the Supreme Court got the ink dry on Shelby versus Holder, various states started to try and enact the kinds of you know, um, barriers to access to voting that were um, akin to what we saw before the civil rights movement. So this is what I mean by the success of the rights movement took our feet off the, you know, the accelerator a little bit or took, you know, made us all a little bit kind of comfortable, not, not as able to see and track how racism kind of morphed into something that we still needed to worry about, but we need to look at it a little bit differently. And so here we are. Wow, we've been learning from uh, Queen Rhonda McGee, author of the book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. Um, I just found the book on Amazon. I actually ordered it. So I'm, I was hoping it would arrive by today. It hasn't. So <laughs> I'll let you know as soon as I finish it, but I'm looking forward to it. Everyone else should pick up their copy at your local uh, bookstore. You know, yeah. buy local first. And yes. If there's no local, go ahead and go to Amazon. Um, yes. And by the question. way, there's also the audio book, just to say, in case 
folks like to prefer to just listen, have me guide some meditation, support you in that. I read the audiobook myself, so I'd love it if folks, you know, found that preferable to go ahead and check out the audiobook from Audible. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's so for people, uh, you know, like myself, who sometimes may have a challenge in reading, we can listen and learn from you. Yes. All right. One last question as we close. Mm. Um, the show is really focused on empowerment. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've been really trying to focus on with empowerment is how do we make intentional generational change? And I know we're up against a hard stop, so yes. I'm not going to ask anything after this. Um, yeah. What have you done differently than the generations that preceded you? Mm. Yeah, I love this question. You know, I, I, I'm, I can only look, you know, I hesitate to, to compare myself to all in the generations that have preceded me because I think, you know, our generation's got us here. You know, it might not have been exactly the, the path that we wanted or, you know, and it's, it's not been easy, but they did some things right to get us here. Um, and some people in those generations certainly did. So, you know, I certainly know that I, I've benefited from my elders and their teachings in terms of um, looking at ways to strengthen my own agency, my own power to start my day with a commitment to my own well-being. And so I'm going to say that's partly a teaching of my grandmother, because if you read my book, you know, or listen to me, you know, I've, you know, I was born in a Christian household where I had a grandmother who, um, who really did start every day before dawn in her own centering prayer and her own sense of purpose. It was Christian based, but it had something in common with the kinds of commitments that I make using mindfulness. So um, there was someone in my family that helped me see the value of this. And then there were other people who didn't so much, but I think um, the beauty for us is to, then the opportunity for all of us is to, Look for the highest and best that we know is in our own traditions in the prior generations, because, again, it's there or else we wouldn't be here and decide, choose, make a commitment to making the most of the opportunities that we have. And to me, uh, this kind of mindfulness based awareness and compassion practice is a support for that. But it's not the only way. I mean, the key is what you're talking about here, brother, which is just finding our own path to empowerment, whatever that looks like for us. Let it be. Um, the call for us at this time to make, to make the most of the opportunities that we have. Beautiful. Well, you've been watching Get On Code, and uh, I need, I think you need to get on your way. I got to <laughs> go. Another interview coming up. So, uh, hey, thank you. And we're gonna definitely going to be in contact. You thank know, you. we've been listening and learning from author Rhonda V. McGee, the author of The Inner Work of Racial Justice healing ourselves and transforming our communities through mindfulness. So get on code, y'all. Get on code. This show was brought to you by Positive Vibes Incorporated, our consulting services. We do credit fixes. We do tax resolution. We lend private money and debt consolidation. So if you need some of these services, we're waiting here for you. Credit fixes, tax resolutions, private money, and debt consolidation. Make sure you call Positive Vibes Incorporated.